You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Election College, Episode 156. Wendell Wilkie? Let's throw a political party. Face it, the political scene sucks. But did it always? It's time for Election College, and class is in session. Now, your hosts, Jason Goff and Ben Smith. So then we talk a lot about, especially at the end of each episode, about how we interact with people every week, almost every day on our social media outlets. And this weekend, as we were discussing, well, what topic should we cover we got a suggestion from Drew, and he said, hey, why don't you talk about our friend Wendell Wilkie, who we discussed back in the FDR years, which seems like a long, long time ago. <laughs> and as we were talking about it, you, me, Ben, I thought, hey, this sounds like a, a really good parallel to certain people in our modern era. And you agreed. And I was like, Wendell Wilkie? Who the heck is that? But yeah, I, I knew it was for real. But it's kind of funny because he's not somebody that you really think, mm, there's an interesting historical figure because, well, he never really <laughs> had uh, a huge position that we remember and hear about and was never successfully elected as president or anything. But he certainly uh, represented a time and maybe uh, a mentality that we understand and know well today and maybe this conversation that we're going to have today will bring a lot of us back to an era where politics were maybe a little bit more friendly <laughs> so wendell wilkie was actually born as lewis wendell wilkie and he was born in the state of indiana in 1892 and uh, his parents were lawyers so he was you know from a decently well-off family. His mother was actually one of the first women to ever get into the bar in Indiana. And his father was an immigrant from Germany. And his grandparents were actually part of the revolutions that ha happened in Germany, which that's not really American election history, Jason, but I think it would be fun to maybe weave into an episode sometime in the future because that's an interesting time in Germany's history for sure. Yeah. What a interesting heritage where, I mean, Ben, I don't know what our relatives were doing in the 1840s, but uh, for the Wilkie family, they knew. So Wilkie was the fourth of six kids, and this family probably had some very interesting conversations around the table. So the Wilkie family was very engaged when it came to progressive politics. So Herman Wilkie, who was Wendell's dad, took his kids to a Democratic event, which featured our buddy William Jennings Bryan. And Bryan had come to Elwood, Indiana during his campaign for president. And 
the Wilkie boys had a sidewalk fight with some Republican kids. And um, the Wilkies won the battle, but the war, as it were, was won by the Republican William McKinley. And when Bryan ran again in 1900, he stayed with the Wilkies and uh, really was the hero, the political hero uh, for the young Wendell Wilkie. So Wendell gets to age 14 and he's there at a local high school and his parents are like, listen, kid, you bend your back too much when you stand up. You don't stand up straight. You're going to a military academy. So he goes <laughs> to uh, a military academy for a summer. And of course, you know, there's some areas of discipline where they think he could do a little better. And, and he's actually a, a model student. And he's a model student when he comes back and goes back to high school. And, and he's really just kind of like, and he's kind of like that good kid that other kids kind of make fun of because he's such a good kid at school and he's good at doing everything he does. So he really makes an impression, especially after he goes off to military academy. And when he was uh, on summer vacation away from high school, he, he worked and he would go away from home and go out to South Dakota and he would go to Yellowstone uh, National Park. And, uh, you know, sometimes he would be a dishwasher. Uh, sometimes he would be a co-owner of a business and then other times he would, you know, get fired because for instance, one time he, uh, was in charge of these horses that were supposed to be drawing a stage coast for tourists. You know, like if you go to New York city or a big city and they want to drive you around in a rickshaw, uh, he was like doing that, but with horses uh, in stage coaches and he lost control of the horses and they were like, yeah, you're fired. Uh, but he did a lot of different stuff, and you know, Dad and Mom were, were proud of him, even though he was far away. Yeah, so the seemingly straight-laced Wilkie, who did so well in military school, <laughs> um, and went back to Elwood to complete his high school, he goes off to Bloomington, Indiana, to attend Indiana University. He graduates and starts the process of earning money for law school, and uh, he does that by teaching history in Coffeyville, Kansas. And he coached debaters and a couple of sports teams. And in 1914, he's like, it's cold here. <laughs> and he goes and becomes a lab assistant in Puerto Rico. Yeah, so when he comes back in 1915, he enrolls at the Indiana School of Law. And, of course, he's a top student, just like we knew he would be, and graduates with high honors in 1916. And uh, he gives this really crazy speech at his graduation, or commencement, I guess, as the, as the proper term may be. And he criticizes the heck out of the school. Uh, the state Supreme Court is present, and the faculty are like, listen, dude, we're not giving you your degree, and we don't care what you have to say about it. But uh, after a couple of days, you know, they debated it, and we're like, okay, we're offended, but what are we going to do? Uh, they gave him his degree. Uh, Wilkie decides, hey, you know what? Mom and dad are lawyers, so why don't I join up with their law firm? And then he uh, ends up volunteering for the Army in 1917, which happens to be when uh, the same day when President Wilson says, hey, Congress, can we go to war against Germany? Because we don't like them. Kind of interesting to note, it was during this time that an Army clerk changed his first name to his middle name and his middle name to his first name by accident. And Wilkie's like, hey, I'm totally cool with that. So <laughs> the whole Wendell Wilkie as opposed to Lewis Wilkie, it's legit. 
and uh, he is commissioned as a first lieutenant and uh, he didn't go to France until September 1918. And um, it's worthy of note that in January of 1918, he married Edith and she was a librarian from Rushville, Indiana. And uh, they had a son named Philip. And uh, the war ends before Wilkie reaches the front. And so he spends his time defending soldiers who had, well, kind of gone AWOL. And uh, he was recommended in the midst of all of that to be promoted to captain. But he was discharged in early 1919. So he leaves the army. He goes back. Kind of a secret activist. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. So he gets discharged from the army. He heads back to Elwood, and he's like, you know what I should do now? I, I mean, I don't have anything else going on. I just got back from, from the war. Uh, maybe I should be a congressman. Uh, sure, yeah, why not? I'm going to be a Democrat, so I, I am a Democrat. It makes sense. And then he gets advised, maybe the district is a little bit Republican. And even if you win, you're probably not going to stay in that position for another term. So maybe you should go to an area that's a little more urban. So dad, of course, wants uh, him to uh, rejoin the family law law firm. But mom is actually really opposed and says, you know, my sons are too good for this town. Uh, They deserve more. They deserve better. And in uh, May of 1919, Wendell Wilkie says, okay, fine. I'll leave town. I'll go away. Uh, I will go up to Akron, Ohio, and he joins up with Firestone, the the tire company, and says, I'm going to be in charge. I'm sure he didn't say this, but he got hired to be the head of the legal office. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he and his wife move up there. Uh, They get bored, (laughs) and they end up going back to the the law firm, or a a law firm, the, the business of law, uh, even though he has the opportunity to make a ton more money at Firestone. Yeah, it's interesting to note that uh, Firestone said, hey, Wilkie, you're never going to amount to anything because you're a Democrat. <laughs> and uh, Wilkie's like, okay. And, uh, well, he'll amount to something with the Akron Democratic Party being a Democrat. So he does that, and, well, he's introduced to our old friend, James M. Cox, who is the governor of Ohio at the time. And, uh, of course, Cox is running for president during 1920. And Wilkie is made a delegate to the 1924 Democratic National Convention. He throws his support behind Al Smith. And when the nomination fell to West Virginia Congressman John Davis, Wilkie found himself in the minority in condemning the Ku Klux Klan. He did some other progressive things, like backing a proposal to support the League of Nations, and uh, that, of course, failed. But um, Wilkie was pretty vocal in his opposition to having Klan members being on the local school board, and that earns him some points later on. So Wilkie and his wife move up to New York in October of 1929, which those of you who are uh, historically savvy, and hopefully we have helped you be a little more historically savvy, know that that's just a couple weeks before the crash of 1929. 
the Wall Street crash. And uh, they had found an apartment that was near Central Park. And, um, you know, they're, they're pretty intimidated because they're from a small town and don't really understand big city life. And then they soon start to love it. And they go to, they start going to Broadway and they, they're like, wow, there's more than one newspaper in this town. I can't believe it. And, uh, Wilkie and his wife, you know, as they're in this bigger city, they start to kind of grow apart in, um, in that time. And, uh, Wilkie actually meets a woman, Aretta Van Doren, and she uh, becomes his friend and then later his lover. And so he has an affair with her and doesn't really try to hide it. Uh, everybody kind of knows about it. The reporters know about it, but nobody says anything because it's like taboo to do so. And it just is kind of a thing that happens and he gets away with it, basically. So Wilkie goes back to the corporate world and um, works for... CNS, which dealt with electricity transmissions and I don't know. <laughs> so Wilkie goes back to the corporate world and works for CNS, which they were the largest electric utility holding company in the United States. And he eventually becomes the president of CNS by 1933. All the while, he is very interested in politics and was a delegate to the 1932 Democratic National Convention. And if you remember this era, well, you'll remember that Herbert Hoover, who was the president, was blamed for the Depression and all of the horrible things that followed the stock market crash. So in 1932, Wilkie is still very interested in politics, and he's a delegate uh, to the DNC. And as you remember, Herbert Hoover was, well, on the way out because he was getting a lot of the blame for the Depression and the stock market crash. And Wilkie throws his support behind Newton D. Baker. But when Baker does not emerge as the winner, or should I say, they were just deadlocked between Franklin D. Roosevelt and John Nance Garner, that... Wilkie ends up throwing his support behind FDR. And, well, that puts him in pretty good favor with FDR. That soon changes when Wilkie finds that FDR proposes legislation creating the Tennessee Valley Authority, which pretty much renders CNS, if not irrelevant, weakened because you have this authority that's been established that's backed by the government. So this whole battle with the Tennessee Valley Authority and and the legislation that goes around it and President Roosevelt's uh, you know controversy involved in it, uh, it creates a big tension and CNS of course is involved and Wilkie is involved and Wilkie starts to kind of feel a little bit jaded by the Democratic Party and specifically uh, President Roosevelt, and starts to kind of shy away. Uh, in 1936, Rose, President Roosevelt and, and Wilkie meet again at the White House, and everybody's kind of like, well, maybe we don't have to be so mean to each other until we see if if he's actually going to get reelected, and if it even matters if he's going to be the president again. And you know, there's there's a Supreme Court case that comes up. Uh, there's all sorts of issues. But Wilkie is like, at this point, getting a lot of national attention 
because he's standing up for the people who hold shares in his company. Uh, and some people are like, hey, Wilkie, uh, you seem to run a company okay. How about the country? Yeah, so Wilkie ended up losing in the courts, and CNS ends up selling the assets to the TVA. But Wilkie gains a national platform as being a guy who is going to drive a hard bargain. And that sounds good. I mean, he's all about getting money into his shareholders' hands. Well, that seems like he might be a good guy to perhaps run the country. So enter 1940. FDR has served two full terms, and he is going to run for an unprecedented third term. Well, there is widespread thought that that just does not seem right. After all, George Washington, he resigned after his second term, and nobody else had went for a third term. But FDR, he's feeling pretty confident that he can pull this off. So at the time, the Republicans were deeply divided. You had an isolationist faction, and you had an interventionalist faction. And of course, those interventionalists thought that America's survival depended upon helping the Allies defeat Germany. And you have our friends, Robert A. Taft and Arthur Vanderberg and Thomas Dewey. They were all the popular Republicans at the time. And everybody was asking, who are we going to put up against FDR in 1940? So Wilkie'd been thinking there in this time, yeah, maybe I'll run for president someday. That's a possibility, but who knows what's going to happen. And in 1938, he debates Assistant Attorney General Robert H. Jackson on the radio, and the topic of their debate is the cooperation between the public and private sectors. And so Wilkie is and comes across as a businessman with a heart, and Jackson on the radio appears kind of, well, Lackluster, not so interesting, uh, definitely not for the little man. And so people just start like, oh, yeah, Wilkie, he could be, he could definitely be the president. Like, or maybe we could, we could, okay, why don't we write him a bunch of letters and we'll ask him, hey, could you run for president? And Wilkie's like, well, maybe I will, maybe I won't. I don't really for sure know until Russell Davenport, the uh, editor, the managing editor of the Fortune magazine, says, Wilkie, you've got the stuff. You've got what it takes. Uh, we're going to actually devote an entire issue to you. And then later on, how about I, Russell Davenport? How about I be your campaign manager? Does that sound like a good idea? And of course, uh, you know, Wilkie is still all about uh, getting getting away from the the um, anti-business policies out of, the, out of the party platform and protecting individual rights, making sure that... Uh, world trade, it, we're aggressive in world trade here in the United States, and people from the press are picking up what he's saying. They're sending it out to the people who are loving what he's saying, and they like the way that he thinks. And you know, everybody knows that that Roosevelt's going to run for a third term. It's just pretty obvious. Gonna, he's going to have, he's going to get the nomination for sure. And so Wilkie is like, well. I guess I'm going to be a Republican because why would I run against Roosevelt? Yeah. If you can't beat him, 
well, run for the other party and try to beat him that way. <laughs> so another thing we have to realize is that the first, well, couple of terms for FDR were not wartime terms for him. And the start of the war, effectively, the start of World War II began in September 1939. World War II breaks out and Americans are concerned, but most people thought eh, the United States should not be involved. But Wilkie said, this is a threat to America and we need to support the Allies. And the war really transforms Wilkie from being a big business critic of FDR's programs. And he's like, you need to be a champion for America. And Wilkie, he was kind of skeptical about his chances from getting the nomination. But there were some people in the Republican Party who are like, yeah, we think you can do it. I mean, after all, we're still pretty split, us Republicans. You got your isolationists and you got your globalists. And Wilkie, you would do a great job of representing the globalist faction of the Republican Party. So come on aboard. Join us. And Wilkie's like, okay. So at the 1940 National Republican Convention, which was held in Philadelphia, the delegates get together and... They are surprised because Roosevelt appoints two Republican globalists to his cabinet. And that's just kind of dirty because essentially what you're doing when you appoint members of the opposite party to your candidate, or so it's thought to be, is you're taking them out of your opponent's party and you're putting them behind you. Yeah, so Wilkie comes to Philadelphia he comes uh, a couple days before the convention and he's walking from 30th street station to his hotel and reporters are coming up to him and just regular people on the street recognize him from the newspaper and uh, pictures they've seen of him. And if basically his position is if they're close enough for me to hear him, I'm going to talk to him. I'm going to answer them. And this is like completely not what people do. Uh, it's not, uh, it's not the norm, I guess you could say. And, uh, and another thing that was weird was that Wilkie's campaign is actually run from these secret rooms in the Benjamin Franklin Hotel. They don't really want people to know where they are, uh, not only for some privacy, but also just because, like, that's not the point. Like, they don't want everybody to know where the campaign headquarters is located, I guess you could say. And so the convention rolls around, and the keynote speech is given by Governor Stason, which we've talked about him before, of course. And he announces, hey, guess what? I'm supporting Wilkie, and I'm going to be one of the managers of the, of the campaign. More support comes to the globalist viewpoint because, well, Hitler is, he's cleaning house in Europe. And there's a lot of fear that's starting to build what is America's role going to be on, on this? Do we continue to be isolationists or not? So the traditional Republicans like Dewey and Taft, their popularity is going down. And Wilkie is being met with thunderous applause. Uh, people are chanting on the convention floor, we want Wilkie. And Wilkie's campaign takes over the convention. 
And by the time it's all said and done, he's unanimously elected as the Republican candidate for president for 1940. So he goes back to New York and everywhere he goes, people notice him. If he goes to the movies, he gets a standing ovation. If he goes to a play, uh, he gets a standing ovation. Uh, pretty much any time he is out and about, he gets a standing ovation. So he resigns from CNS, the company he's worked for for so long, thinking, hey, if I lose my presidential bid, I'm probably not going to have a hard time finding any work. Uh, after all, people will know me and I'm probably going to win anyway. And Roosevelt is surprised by what happened at the Republican convention. Uh, he thought that, hey, maybe there'll be more of a conservative person coming in, uh, more of an isolationist maybe. And nope, didn't happen. And he's getting scared. Roosevelt's getting scared, that is. The polls are showing that Wilkie is behind by only six points. And this is a guy who nobody knows against a guy who has been president for two terms at this point. So... The president is like, okay, so maybe this is going to be a little bit more uh, a difficult race than the last couple, because as you know, he had handily won several elections before that. The Democratic Convention is held in July, and yeah, this catches Roosevelt off guard. And Wilkie formally accepts the Republican nomination on August the 17th, get this, Ben, before a crowd of at least 150,000 people. This was the largest political gathering in U.S. history up to that point. It's crazy. Yeah. He gives the speech. It's a typed manuscript, and he fails to ignite the crowd. And so this sets him back a bit. He goes back to some old-school campaigning, basically staying at home and not doing very much. FDR reaches out to Wilkie in the campaign, and he's like, so how do you feel about this, and how do you feel about that? And what ends up happening is Wilkie and Roosevelt agree on a lot of issues. And the traditional Republicans are like, oh, we just nominated the wrong person, and there's nothing we can do. <laughs> because what's the difference? Wilkie is promising to keep... Uh, a lot of the social programs that FDR implemented, like uh, Social Security and um, a lot of the work programs, he was totally behind it. Um, a little bit later, Wilkie does start campaigning again. He goes around on a train. He gets to 31 of the 48 states. He doesn't go south, which could have been a mistake, but he avoided it. And uh, it really looks like you have two people who are philosophically the same running for president. Yeah, and so October comes around, and beginning of October, Roosevelt is pretty well ahead of Wilkie. And Wilkie's like, you know what? Isolationism. <laughs> and starts banging the drum of isolationism and says Roosevelt is a warmonger, which, well, that's... That's kind of an opposite drum than you were beating a little while ago. And many of his speeches before that point had been about domestic issues. And uh, he was kind of told that the war should be the issue that the voters really care about. And that's what you should really talk about. But Wilkie starts to say about how, you know, Roosevelt, he simply can't keep the U.S. out of war. Uh, he, 
I would have done that, but Roosevelt can't apparently. And the the voters show up and they're like, this this isn't what we were expecting. This isn't what we thought was was being said. And so Wilkie, uh, November 2nd, has a large rally at Madison Square Garden, and, and the polls show him a little ways behind Roosevelt. There's still a good possibility that he could win. But Election Day comes around a couple days later, and uh, initially, everybody's like, all right, well, actually, Wilkie may pull this off. But as uh, as we know, the time zones go a little further, and Wilkie only receives 45% of the popular vote, and uh, he ends up losing the Electoral College in a landslide, 449 to 82. So it hurts a good bit. Yeah. So that amounts to 10 states going for Wilkie, and uh, FDR got 38 states. Well, Wilkie did better than Hoover and Landon did in the previous elections. Uh, Kind of interesting to note, though, and I've never seen a quote quite like this, but after the election, Wilkie, uh, he's on vacation in Florida, and he gives a toast at the end of a speech, and he says, quote, to the health and happiness of the President of the United States. And Roosevelt confides to his son, saying, quote, I'm happy I've won, but I'm sorry Wendell lost. <laughs> I felt like that before. Like, you know, sometimes, you know, you're rooting for a, a sports team, and they win, and you really wanted them to win, but then you see the guys on the other team, and some of them are crying, and you know how much it means to them, and you're like, oh, I kind of wish they could have won, too. Yeah. I'm a softie. <laughs> you are a softie. <laughs> Time to take a stand, Ben. Time to take a stand. But actually, Wilkie and Roosevelt do have a good relationship going forward, and Roosevelt does send Wilkie out on different missions uh, to show the bipartisan American support of Great Britain uh, with the war going on and so on. And this can probably best be exemplified by uh, Wilkie telling the the press over in the United Kingdom that, quote, I want to do all I can to get the United States to give England the utmost aid possible in her struggle. And so Wilkie very much becomes an advocate for Roosevelt on all fronts of the war. So fast forward to 1944, and Wilkie is uh, going to plan on running again. He starts starts gearing up back in 1943, the year before. And he says, yeah, I'm going to run. And he just can't really gain any traction. Uh, Nobody really (laughs) comes out to support him. And uh, he doesn't win nearly as many uh, uh, primary elections as he should. So in April, Wilkie realizes, yeah, I'm probably not going to make it. And he withdraws from the race, thereby ending his 1944 presidential run, uh, which would be his last run. Yeah. And just to think that if he would have been selected, which was rumored, selected to become Roosevelt's running mate ahead of Harry Truman, well, he could have been president. But unfortunately, not only was he not involved in any part of government as a result of the 1944 election, in August of that year, he had a series of heart attacks and ended up dying later on that year. Yeah, so of course Roosevelt comes out and applauds 
uh, Wilkie's courage and and the fact that hey, he was a pretty good guy. I mean, he did a lot of good stuff. He was a friend of mine. He loved this country. He cared about the people, and uh, you know, he was placed in the center aisle of the Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. Sixty thousand people come by his casket, and thirty-five thousand people crowd around during the church service and you know there are there are many people many black individuals many women who come in support of him and the the fact that he was an advocate for them yeah uh shortly before he died uh, he told a friend quote if i could write my own epitaph and if i had to choose between saying here lies an unimportant president or here lies one who contributed to saving freedom at a moment of great peril I would prefer the latter. And so there we have it, the life of Wendell Wilkie. Yep, and uh, we would love to do more episodes explicitly on, well, I hate to say it, but the losers of presidential elections. So if you have any favorites out there, just like Drew recommended this one to us, go ahead and shout them out to us on our social media channels. You can hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Election College, and just say, hey, I think it'd be really cool if you did an episode on XYZ, but of course, fill in the blank, and we would be happy to, you know, maybe we can't do it right away, and we have some planned out, but we'll consider it. Yeah, and while you're considering things, considering supporting the podcast, you can do that by purchasing one of our logo t-shirts. That is right, we are selling t-shirts with the Election College logo on them. You can check them out at electioncollege.com slash store. And, of course, it really makes us do a little happy dance when you go over to iTunes and leave us a great big review or even a little tiny small one. But we won't tell everybody that because we want people to leave big, huge ones. Go over to electioncollege.com slash review. Leave us a review and a star rating. It'll make our day. I legitimately promise you. Think about some, Think about the last time where you got like a cool text message or you heard back from an email you'd been waiting on or you found out you were getting a raise. I'm not kidding. I get the same feeling every time we get a five-star review that I used to get when I found out, oh, I'm getting promoted or I, I'm getting a raise on something. It doesn't make sense how excited I get, but I legitimately get that excited. So head over and give us a review. We would love that. Thanks so much for joining us today and every day. And we look forward to talking to you again next week. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.